This is making me laugh because right before we recorded, I opened up one of our drawers and I found the mini umbrella that goes with the squirrel table I bought. Like that table you mount on your fence and you put nuts on it <laughs> so a squirrel can eat yeah. at its own picnic table, you know? Yeah, I thought you said squirrel table. but Squirrel I... table. Okay. Yeah. And Michelle, let me tell you how badly I needed that squirrel yeah. table <laughs> when I bought it. Welcome back to the Modern Lady Podcast. You're listening to episode 145. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Lindsay. And today we are talking about contentment. We live in a world of great excess. Advertisements and influencers beckon from every corner of our culture to indulge and to seek a life of unbridled luxury. But does this truly make us happy? The truth is more countercultural than we may realize, and the key may be found in our quest for contentment and in a wonderful Swedish concept called Lagom. But first, the best way that you can support The Modern Lady is by subscribing to our podcast on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts and by sharing us with your friends. We also welcome you to join us over at patreon.com forward slash the modern lady podcast where for just five dollars a month you will get exclusive and extra content michelle and i just want to give a shout out to our newest patreon supporters this week it means so much to us that you can support us in this special way thank you to Lacey, deb and shell for joining us on patreon and if you would like to leave us a comment or message us about today's episode the best way to get in touch with us is on instagram at the modern lady podcast But be sure to stay tuned to the end of the episode for other ways to connect because we would love to hear from you. But before we get into today's chat, Lindsay has our Modern Lady Tip of the Week. I'd like to thank my friend Karina at that.catholic.widow for this etiquette tip suggestion. The season of gifting cute Christmas tins filled with baked goods is upon us. And while many of us are aware of this etiquette tip, it's worth repeating. And as always, I've enjoyed looking into it a little further. The tip is never return a Tupperware container empty. It could be Tupperware or any type of food storage container, but if someone is kind enough to drop off food for you, whether it be chicken noodle soup because you're sick or some homemade cookies, be sure to return their container with another treat in it. How widespread is this practice? I found a whole article on this topic from the British newspaper, theguardian.com, and it opens with two examples of how this is a very common practice in Korea and in Lebanon. I know that it's common for many other places too, but the article shares two sweet stories of people returning borrowed food containers filled back up with food from their cultures, and the one story is especially wholesome. Karima Chloe Hazim is the founder of a Lebanese cooking school, and she is a firm believer in never returning empty containers. This practice spread to her workplace when someone brought a snack in for everyone, and then she brought home the container and filled it with a Lebanese treat, and then someone else brought it home and filled it with a treat from their country, and so on and so on. What a lovely idea for a workplace. The Guardian article goes on to suggest appropriate items to refill a container with. If it's small, a bag of chocolate-covered nuts is a nice gift. And Hazim suggests a loaf of sourdough bread and some butter if it's a larger container. An Italian-born chef, also mentioned in the article, says that she loves returning borrowed items, and it could be a mixing bowl or a pot as well, with some fresh produce from her garden. 
The article ends with the Korean practice of jung, which is a lovely cultural concept of showing affection, and it can be practiced with food by dividing and sharing the last bite of something. Essentially, it is sharing food with those we appreciate, making sure each person gets a little something. And if that isn't a wonderful thing to keep in mind as we enter into this gift-giving season, I don't know what is. Oh, I love this idea. I have to I have to say I'm not in the practice of filling up empty containers back. I'm always oh. like No, I'm kind of preoccupied with making sure they're getting something clean back <laughs> so that they yes. don't have to wash more dishes. But I do. I really love that idea of just like um a little acknowledgement of gratitude when someone goes out of their way to be kind and share something with you and your family. I, I really like that. Well, you know, what's funny is on my Facebook mm-hmm. memories today, you delivered to me a soup and yeah. um, <laughs> bread, right? Cause I was sick and we log in today and you're under the weather and I wish yes. I could get out to you with some hot soup oh. today. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Then I would give back the, the takeout <laughs> the containers. And, yeah. And then, <laughs> and then so on and so on. Yeah. <laughs> Balance is certainly a trending buzzword in our day. We seek work-life balance. We strive to eat a balanced diet. We try to balance our schedules and our checkbooks. We can all probably agree that balance is a good thing. But where to begin for all of our life, right, Lindsay? Yes, it's the thing I struggle with the most. Hands down, it is the thing. I am really good at either extreme of something, but that mm. middle that middle road I'm terrible at. And mm-hmm. I think that when we recorded last week's episode and we were talking about contentment, we realized that that true feeling of contentment really is um, comes from a place of balance, right? And we're like, yes. okay, these two things are connected, so we want to do a whole episode on this. Yeah. And do you know what? I think that because I'm similar, like, especially when I'm presented with a new idea or something like that, I want to go all in, whatever it is. And it can be like either an extreme of excess or an extreme of severity or an extreme of um, practice in any one sense. But very rarely do I take the time to consider how can I approach this in a more balanced way? Mm -hmm. And you're right. Like, taking that more uh, moderate approach often, as we'll talk about today, does lead to greater contentment. Yes. Now, there was a specific part in our episode last week that just really struck you and I, right? So for Mm -hmm. those uh, people who maybe haven't heard that episode yet, I'm just going to repeat that section. So I had said, there was research done on a group of nomad peoples living high up in the Himalayas. Researchers showed these people videos and photos showing many different human emotions and vocal changes that happen when someone is happy or sad, etc., They, not surprisingly, recognized and understood the emotions that they saw represented. But one emotion gave them pause, and it was contentment. Now, the guide, named Dr. Dorji Wangchuk, said, quote, In our culture, this emotion is very special. It is the highest achievement of human well-being, and it is what the greatest enlightened masters have been writing about for thousands of years, end quote. Their word for this is chokshe, which basically translates into the knowledge of enough. And this is what stopped us in our tracks. This this phrase, the knowledge of enough. It, it inspired us to revisit this concept of contentment and then to make a whole episode about it. 
So we'll look into contentment and then we're going to go into temperance and then on the, a new fun Swedish concept that we've been loving for a while, we will, we will finish up with. But first, let's go a little deeper into contentment. So there is a famous quote by Oscar Wilde and in it he says, true contentment is not having everything, but in being satisfied with everything you have. And we're like, that's mm. it. <laughs> that's yep. perfect. We're done the episode. <laughs> I know. How are these people able to summarize in like one sentence what we are probably going to talk about for the next like 40 minutes or so? Yeah. I'm looking at my word count and I'm like, yep, 3,500 words. Uh, <laughs> that's, I guess, why Wilde was a professional. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Oh, but yeah, that, that is such a good quote. Um, I was trying to look up different definitions of contentment and contentedness from around online. And so many of the definitions go along with what Oscar Wilde was saying, right? Yeah. Um, being happy with what you have, who you are, where you are right now. Um, there was a really good definition on goodtherapy.com that mm -hmm. adds on this idea of like it's about respecting the reality of the present mm, yes right Love and that. yeah yes and that image was just so striking to me like being content means just respecting the reality of the present moment and I, d I don't know if we often do that you know so much of our lives are spent like rehashing the past or constantly looking ahead um, yeah. where we're going, what we could gain from any particular thing. But I love like all of the definitions of contentedness really forces us to um, stay the here and now and work on the satisfaction right now. Yes. And this is actually, it seems like such a simple topic, but I'm sure you found mm -hmm. too in your research that it is anything but simple. Like there are so many things that threaten our sense of contentment, right? Of contentedness. Yeah. There are just so many things that are just wanting to disrupt us, um, whether it's like how we view ourselves, our houses, our, our bodies, our relationships. Like there's just so many different aspects that can really make it hard for us to find true contentment. One of those mm -hmm. things um, was a problem in Wilde's time and Oscar Wilde's time, but even more now, we live in an age of great consumerism. Mm -hmm. And this is a new experience for humans. Like it really started in the late Victorian period as the industrial revolution started to mass produce items, which made goods more affordable, right? For the working class people. This was new. And then things took a turn again during the two world wars and the Great Depression. And, you know, the world wars impacted Europe's day-to-day -day life in a certain way. And the Great Depression maybe impacted the United States more. But needless to say, there was a period there where um, you couldn't just go get what you wanted for, for average people. And then the 50s happened. And it was like this massive boom and everything. And you needed to have the best stuff. And that's where like, you know, these perfect houses and the housewives and and middle class prosperity really happened mm. including mm. the creation essentially of the teenager obviously there's always been in chronological mm. age teenagers yes <laughs> but right but they weren't a target market audience and until the 1950s and 60s and people companies wanted to create lifelong consumers and that's when they really started marketing to these these teenagers that had for the first time some independence they weren't going off to fight in war they had little jobs right they've got they had some money to spend and so now now in 2023 you add in social media which is mm. well let's just remind ourselves like the whole purpose of social media is data data gathering and there's that mm -hmm. saying that if you're not 
if you're not paying for a product, you are the product. And that's right. what social media is, right? They, they want to get to know you as best they can so that companies can target you as best they can with ads. And so this desire, this desire that is just ever growing to keep up with the Joneses is, is one of those things trying to steal our contentment. And I think that it comes down to, in a lot of these areas, um, expectation versus reality. And I think that our expectations are dramatically increased by what we today are seeing again on social media and reading in our romance novels and watching on Mm. Netflix, right? And when such an artificial reality is, is essentially being like pushed on us, reality itself seems more and more grim as the days go by. And so I'm like, Mm. how on earth can we be contented in such a world? Mm hmm. It's true. It's it's discontentedness, Mm. right, is Mm. what we're struggling with here. And on that note, everything you just said relates back to I came across an excerpt from Fulton Sheen's our 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 beloved, our beloved Fulton Sheen's (laughs) um, book. He has a book called Way Way to Happiness. Mm -hmm. And the first chapter um, is called Contentment. And I know, and he identifies the four reasons that you may be discontent. And the four Mm. of them are egotism, which Mm. he essentially explains as pride, um, envy, covetousness, and jealousy. Right. And that goes so much with what you're saying, especially about like what breeds are discontent, especially nowadays. It's the advertisement. It's the desire. Yeah. Um to have for ourselves so I would consider that like the egotism and the pride and then the wanting to keep up with the Joneses keep up with everything else that's envy jealousy covetousness that's all that comes up and he goes on to say like you know it's all mitigated by the virtue of humility Mm. seeing things as they really are and that ties into what we're talking about respecting the reality yeah. of the present right so you're right like in in a very secular way and we're seeing also in a theological way this whole the underlying issues here all stem from the same things is our discontent comes from the same places and yeah. the solution is similar too and it's rooted in reality and in our present moments I love that. Of course, Sheen had something brilliant to say on it. And I can't believe I didn't know that. That's incredible. (laughs) And it's funny because in my notes, when I was like trying to define contentment, I found it was actually maybe easier for us to understand discontentment, right? Like that seems like something we can put our finger on more than maybe we can with contentment. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, strange how that happens. Yes. So then I was like, Everything, when you Google contentment, it's always linked with happiness, right? And mm-hmm. so it's like, okay, how are contentment and happiness different? Because they are different. And then as soon as I started to dig into that, I went all the way back. It was like a time travel trip back to ancient Greece and yeah. Aristotle. <laughs> and I came across this this term, eudaimonia. And it is a central concept in ethics and philosophy. Now, to Aristotle, it's the highest human good. And I think this is really interesting. I got this quote from Britannica.com. It says, it is the only human good that is desirable for its own sake, and then in brackets, as an end to itself, rather than for the sake of something else, and then in brackets, as a means towards some other end, end quote. Mm. (laughs) That's kind of a lot of words, but Mm -hmm. it's like, 
it, very different than our concept of love, right? Which is willingly good of the other. This, this concept of like achieving the highest human good is really the only thing that is, is good for our own sake. And I'm like, I kind of like that. Mm-hmm. So when I kept looking into it, I was, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was, why was I shocked that there was so much information that we couldn't just sum up this <laughs> very intense philosophical concept uh, in just a few minutes on our little podcast. Um, but it's right. fascinating. And so another thing it kind of talks about is that it is the good performance of the characteristic function of human beings. Okay, so namely excellence in all the best parts of being human, okay? Mm -hmm. It's like Mm -hmm. you want to do all the best things, living a virtuous life. Mm. And we'll go into virtues a little bit more, but, you know, Christianity isn't the first place that came up with virtues. This was a really big deal in in the Stoic culture of ancient Greece as well. So Mm -hmm. to sum it up, it seems like in order to achieve the highest human good, we need to practice a lot of self-control. And when we master ourselves, we pave the way for a, quote, complete life, which is, again, what their goal is. And I think having a complete life would make someone feel pretty darn content. Hmm. Wow. A lot there. With that. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> My goodness, you're right. Like, how could we have like summed up ancient Greek philosophy in a more succinct way? Bravo. Well done. Um. Yeah, I was so interested when you were saying that Aristotle really taught that to achieve eudom. How do you say it? Eudaimonia. I think eudaimonia. But then eudaimonia? I was just thinking, maybe it's like eudaimonia. <laughs> so either tomato, you know tomato. What we mean. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so eudaimonia or eudaimonia, <laughs> um, namely that it, it requires you to basically live virtuously, right? Mm-hmm. And yes. we have talked about cultivating virtues before on the podcast, and I think we'll get into a little bit more in a little bit, but. Um, we do know that trying to live virtuously and trying to live out the virtues is a lot of hard work, mm-hmm. um, mostly interiorly, right? Like it's a, yeah. a lot of working on yourself. So um, I think I found that article you were referencing last week about the nomadic tribe. Yeah. Yep. And um, this part really relates to what you're saying about eudaimonia um, is that all all the other emotions require external input. So mm-hmm. like their reactions to something in the outside world. But that contentment, and in this case, we're talking about eudaimonia, is something that comes from inside of us. Um, yes. It answers like, how whole are you? And that because of that, how content we feel is entirely up to us. So we can't always control the external input that's coming in, but we can determine our level of contentedness, which the article says, quote, offers an incredible power and stability. And Mm. I just love this concept that, you know, contentment, eudaimonia, it's not to be confused with complacency. Yep. Right. So to be happy and satisfied with where you are, with what you have and to find that purpose and meaning here and to do that work as opposed to just being unsatisfied with your life and what you have right now, but also being unwilling to do anything about it. Yeah. I love that you said how whole you are. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. Love that. 
Okay, so somewhere in my research, and I think this is the first time ever, I don't actually have the name of the website, um, but it was something like Urban Therapy, I think. Um, they suggested three ways to grow in contentment, and I thought these are great. So the first one is learning to distinguish between wants and needs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think this is something that maybe we don't know how to develop in ourselves, but if you've ever raised toddlers, it's something that we seem to want to teach them. Right. And I'm like, this is like, so it's something that we like, it's a great time to start to practice that skill, um, is right from toddler years on. But I guess the main distinction is that needs are things that are required for survival and Mm. wants are things that are good to have. Right. But they aren't technically essential. Mm. Um, But I think that when we learn to distinguish between those things, um, it really allows us to appreciate both of them in a really authentic way, especially when we treat ourselves finally to one of those wants. Mm. Yeah. And this kind of piggybacks off of what we were talking about before with um, advertisements and uh, social media and everything. Mm -hmm. That's the nature of marketing, right? We're so surrounded by marketing. It is hard to distinguish just on a surface level, what is a need and what is a want? Because everything is presented to us as a need. Like you have to have this in order to be fulfilled, like to be content and to find that happiness. So um, I don't think we could maybe be blamed for those times without thinking. We're like, um, yeah, we're confusing the wants and the needs, but that's a really good uh, clarification and a kind of a a call back a harken back to try to distinguish between those two because there is quite a quite a big distance if you think about it this is making me laugh because right before we recorded I opened up one of our drawers and I found the mini umbrella that goes with the squirrel table I bought like that table you mount on your fence and you put nuts on it so a squirrel can eat (laughs) at its own picnic table you know yeah I thought you said squirrel table but squirrel table yeah (laughs) And Michelle, let me tell you how badly I needed that scroll table (laughs) when I bought it. But Jason has not hung it up yet. So I'm laughing about those needs. And and I think this is especially important to remember as soon as, oh my goodness, as soon as November 1st hit, our Mm. Instagrams were Mm. filled with like all of the Christmas needs, right? And so that message is just going to be hammered home to you. Like you need this, you need this, you need this. So yeah, to grow in contentment, start to learn how to pra- like practice distinguishing between your wants and needs. Mm-hmm. Now, the second thing is simplicity, um, an uncomplicated life and really learning what that means and how to embrace it. And the world tells us that we need to be everywhere, doing everything, being everything to everyone. And I think it's a lie. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think that, right, it's this idea that it wants the world or or the devil wants you to be as stressed as possible so that you can't be your best version of yourself to the people mm. you love the most. And so I actually think the truth is, is that we have so much more control over our lives than we'd like to accept because sometimes it's easier to just go with the flow. But we as adults, we can say enough at any mm. point and we can excuse ourselves from the, like the rat race, right? The daily rat race. Um, and so I think that working towards a more simple life is a lot easier once you've mastered step one of the wants versus needs thing. So you kind of work on that first and then you start to discard and detach from the things that you really don't need anymore. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting because something that I see pop up a lot in tandem with simplicity online is the need for purpose. 
like mm-hmm. to have a clear focus on what your purpose is. And I can totally see how these two things are related because if you really know, you know, what are your goals in life? What is really important? What is essential? What is it that you really mm-hmm. need as opposed to want? Then you don't need to clutter up your life with with superfluous things, right? That are yes. not going to help you get to that goal. And so... um Yeah, I love that idea of simplicity and how it all kind of comes back to purpose. Oh, and purpose as well. Finding your purpose um, in that sense can really contribute to your sense of contentedness as well. Mm. If you know exactly what you're about and where you're headed, um, yeah, you're not going to be bothered by the distractions and you will probably feel a lot more at peace. Yes. And Then if you reach that point, I think it's the third thing and it's perfect. It's gratitude. Mm -hmm. So I think after you've figured out what's essential for your life, like you're saying, once you've simplified things, I think you then really learn to be thankful for like that one special event that you like bought tickets for, right? That you're looking for Mm -hmm. or like that new winter coat that you saved up your money for. So you bought a better one and it's going to last you for a long time. I think true gratitude is deeply satisfying. And I think that that's what leaves you feeling contented or contentment. Mm -hmm. So, the next thing we want to talk about (laughs) is something that I think this word gets a bad rap. Maybe it's because it's still associated with, um, oh, prohibition, right? Right. The temperance (laughs) movement. (laughs) Yes. The teetotalers, the no more alcohol movement, but it's the word temperance. And Mm -hmm. it's again, it's, it's, in this sense, we're using it in a theological sense, but it's still that same concept of like, not too much, not too little and finding your contentment in that middle ground. And so, yeah, you and I look at it as temperance. It's um, one of the four cardinal virtues, but first I'll just address again, like what is a virtue? And Mm -hmm. we've talked about it many times before, but I found a new thing today. I thought that was really cool. And it's from catholicstraightanswers.com. Not to be confused with CatholicAnswers.com, which I think a lot of us Catholics are used to. Yes, Catholic Straight Answers. Catholic Straight Answers. Even more direct. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And in it, they wrote, um, St. Paul in his letter to the Philippians captured the idea of virtue and the living of a virtuous life. St. Paul writes, my brothers, your thoughts should be wholly directed to all that is true, all that deserves respect, all that is honest, pure, admirable, decent, virtuous, or worthy of praise. Now, It says, with this in mind, the classic definition of virtue is a habit or firm disposition which inclines a person to do good and avoid evil. Okay, so there's a whole bunch of virtues, but then the Catholic Church has four cardinal virtues. Um, These are prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. And then also from CatholicStraightAnswers.com, they say that that these are the four primary moral virtues, the cardinal virtues. And the word cardinal derives from the Latin cardo, which means hinge. Consequently, these four virtues are called cardinal because all of the other virtues are categorized under them and hinge upon Mm. them. And then finally, just so we're super clear, um, temperance is defined by the Catechism of the Catholic Church as the moral virtue that moderates the attraction of pleasures and provides balance in the use of created goods. It ensures the will's mastery over instincts and keeps desires within the limits of what is honorable. Hands Mm. down, that is my favorite definition. There is so much there, right? It's not denying pleasure. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just keeping things in balance. And it's not also saying 
saying don't give into buying created goods. Like all of these things are are mentioned and taken into account, but it's keeping those things in check and and staying honorable. Oh, I just love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had that one line, that last line from the catechism's mm-hmm. definition too in my notes that it's the will's mastery over instincts, mm-hmm. right? And it yeah. really just sums up the connection between tem- temperance and contentment, right? It's mm-hmm. this knowledge of enough, yes. right? That's essentially what temperance is as a virtue, is exercising your will to the point where you know as you go through your day-to-day life how much is enough. Like yes. you said, it's not like it's not a deprivation. It's not severe. And sometimes it, because probably of the prohibition, we think it's a severity. <laughs> we yes. think it's an abstinence of something, yes. right? That's right. Yeah. Um, but really, it's just a mastery of your will. And that absolutely is virtuous. And it is, as we said, a lot of work <laughs> to master. Yes. And if these cardinal virtues seem familiar to you, you may be familiar with the four stoic virtues, um, and they are wisdom, courage, temperance, and justice. And these are, again, from Greece, um, and these were pre-Christian times. And there's a great quote from dailystoic.com that says, temperance is the knowledge that abundance comes from having what is essential. The Stoics often used temperance interchangeably with self-control. Self-control, not just towards material goods, but self-control, harmony, and good discipline always in pleasure or pain, admiration or contempt, failure or triumph. Temperance is guarded against extremes, not relying on the fleetingness of pleasure for happiness, nor allowing the fleetingness of pain to destroy it, end quote. And I think mm. that's everything we would agree with, right, from a Catholic perspective. That is how yeah. we would describe temperance. Yeah. Yeah. Just this idea of moderation, Right. Yes. And what's interesting, too, is that it's kind of like the, you know, the golden rule of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And you can find it in every I think it's every major world religion. You can find an iteration of that. It, It just spans. It's kind of it's intrinsic to something within us that you can find it in so many places over so many so many centuries. And I've, I was finding that this is the case, too, for this idea of the practice of moderation and of temperance and why it's so important. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these examples I was really interested to learn about from um, a YouTuber named Irina Skuld. And she was talking about the Swedish art of Lagom. And she mm-hmm. points out all of these different universal uh, practices of moderation And she starts with the Temple of Apollo in Delphi, which has two inscriptions. And one of the inscriptions says, Maiden Agan, which means nothing in excess. Mm. Then she goes into Epictetus, which is a Greek Stoic philosopher who says, If one oversteps the bounds of moderation, the greatest pleasures cease to please. Right? Moving into like Seneca. (laughs) Seneca, who's a Roman Stoic philosopher. And he said, quote, so-called pleasures when they go beyond a certain limit are but punishments, Mm. end quote. And then also, too, in the Arabic world, the concept they have is called wasat, W-A-S-A-T, which means middle or centered or balanced Mm. and moderation. 
And then, of course, in the Bible, in the Christian tradition, there are so many references to moderation and temperance. Like in Philippians chapter 4, Paul says that quote of, you know, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Now, some version says, let your kindness be known to all. But in other versions, it's let your moderation be known to all. The Lord is near. Yeah, and the many other ones as well. So I just love that it seems to be a universal call because something within us knows that excess is not going to be what ultimately satisf- satisfies us or where we'll find true contentedness. Oh, I love that. And that brings us, yeah, back to Sweden and this concept of lagom, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, we. this is basically a way for us to get to Sweden. We were so our... excited to get to Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, we can't we're possibly, yes, we can't possibly do another episode on Huga. And we've already done Fika years ago. Yeah. And so um, <laughs> alongside my books on my bookshelf of Fika and Huga, I have a book on lagom and I've had it for right. a long time. And so we're we're so excited to kind of to come here um and so it brings us back to this concept of enough right the knowledge Mm -hmm. of enough which is what we started with and while i love temperance and i'm all about the four cardinal virtues i just thought (laughs) when you and i were joking about this that maybe it's because it's scandinavian but um lagom seems a little cozier than temperance Mm. yes (laughs) and then we're like maybe because in most time like most of the times it's referenced it has to do with cake like with fika and having your little dessert in your coffee break and but then in my notes i was like but it doesn't always have to do with cake but to me it's like not too much cake not too much cake so um back to scandinavia so yeah the word is l-a-g-o-m lagom and it means not too much and not too little just right so my book about Lagom is written by a woman na- named Linnea Dunn, and she says that the it's widely believed that the origin of the word comes from a Viking saying for, for Laget Om, which mm-hmm. means around the team, which is what they did when they would pass the drinking horn around. Um, it meant that everyone took just enough so that there would be enough left for the next person, which Michelle, when you said that mm-hmm. interchangeable word from scripture of kindness versus modesty, was it those two? Uh, mod- Moderation. Yes. Moderation. Right. Okay. Sorry. Kindness yep. and moderation. That made me think that when we are moderate, it is by effect kindness mm. to everyone else, right? When we don't take anything in excess, right? We are, it is often an act of kindness. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's such a good point. Because when I was reading about this origin as well with the Vikings, which I love mm-hmm. that this is the etymology of the word, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's uh, reminded me of the, the quote. Now, I thought it was Mother Teresa, but other people say it could have also been Gandhi. Right. I I think it could be either one of them who said, live simply so that others may simply live. Right. Yes. Right. Which is a kindness and a consideration of how you live your life. So how it impacts positively someone else. So, yeah, I love that. The concept of Lagom is this philosophy put into practice. And that's so interesting because... 
okay, another aspect of it in Swedish culture is that they can, they say it's like a fair use policy to make sure mm. everyone gets their piece because everyone is entitled to like their own piece of something. Mm-hmm. And then the second aspect of Logom in Swedish culture is about satisfaction. So mm. yeah, it's making sure everybody gets something, but it's also that you learn to be satisfied with what you did get. Um, this other awesome thing about Swedish culture that was at the, uh, in the intro of my book. So <laughs> it talks about how in 1996, an author named Jonas Gardell referred to Sweden as the country of semi-skimmed milk. And mm. from what the book says, Swedes really loved this description and like own it because they say it's perfectly lagom. The milk is not too skinny and not too fat. So they are semi-skimmed people. <laughs> Oh, so 2% milk. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do love that too. Yes. Just that. Um, yeah. It just all comes back to that balance. Right. Yes. Um, but I do love going back to what you're saying about this fair use policy, that there's mm-hmm. enough for everyone. I kind of like that legalistic aspect to Lagom too, that side yes. of it. Um, it kind of reminds me of our favorite Navy SEAL, Jocko Willink. Mm-hmm. When he talks about discipline equals freedom, mm-hmm. right? And because we, we've just been talking about temperance and the virtues and how it's this interior work that we have to do. We have to discipline ourselves to have self-control in order yeah. that everyone um, gets their fair share of something. But that ultimately when we do that, it's going to free us interiorly from our own desires. And why yeah. is that important? because we're free to extend the fruits of that virtue to the other people around us. So it's just, as with a lot of concepts, I think, from Sweden, they have like this very holistic view of how a a lifestyle, a communal lifestyle especially, should be taking into consideration how your individual self impacts the community and how a healthy communal um, aspect will impact you as an individual and the give yes. and take that's found yeah. there. I love that about Sweden. And it's actually so important for them. Like this type of thing, a lot of it's been worked into their government policies because the legume lifestyle there, it, it, it's not just about fika, which is the coffee break and, and cinnamon roll in the afternoon. <laughs> um, they they use it in terms of work-life balance, exercise, if you're staying in versus going out. But it's such a part of their everyday life that it's been worked into workplace policies, daycares, government institutions. They've helped all make this achievable, this idea, mm. this work-life balance uh they they have really long maternity leaves um they have more coffee breaks during the day you get longer vacation time there's really affordable daycare um including after school daycare which is called fritids which literally (laughs) translates into free time which is really neat that they're like hey it's a little bit more free time maybe for the parents who need to grab something on the way home after work um right down to the culture that promotes fatherhood as just as important as motherhood and like an actual way of like doing the actions there's an equal breakdown of the parenting duties there that you really don't get in a lot of other countries so there's a system in place um you know right from the government on down like a top-down system that helps people achieve this balanced legome life Mm -hmm. that's a really interesting point too just noting the differences in cultures that their entire um lifestyle right up to the like the government laws of the land yeah. um, seem to support this 
this philosophy of life. Whereas for us, it might be at least for a little while, like we live in a culture that's not quite so interested, I guess, yeah. as a whole legally um, about the supporting the balance of everything. Yeah. We have like the glorification yeah. of busyness. Um, your value is dependent on the amount of work you put out. Um yeah, all those different things. It's interesting to note, like, we long for that kind of a balance. But societally, it might um, take a little bit longer to reach that extent here as opposed to how it is in Scandinavia. Totally. it's a to- I would say it's such a different culture over here. And mm-hmm. I'd say Canada's kind of in the middle, right? We've got a little yep. bit of... I call myself a Scandinavian. Um, <laughs> I feel like we've got a bit of it up here, but there is still very much that rat race culture over in America um, and parts of the United States. And it is so different when you hear from people in Italy and Spain and these different cultures over in Europe where they do seem to have really held on to this idea that your your life, your lifestyle is critically important for your your health and the health of the community, like what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Another interesting aspect of Lagom in Swedish culture is their design. So I'm talking like furniture and home design. It's it's we know this. It's we know IKEA, right? It's gonna pop yes. into your head. Um, it's minimalist, yet often really well made. Um, the furniture, especially if we go beyond IKEA, but I've always been happy with my IKEA products. Um, their furniture mm-hmm. and their their home decor is affordable yet eco-conscious, and it's also seen in what they choose to wear uh, in their wardrobes. Swedes um, really love to have a minimalist like um, capsule wardrobe. They have usually just a few colors, but then the odd, really fun piece that they mix mm-hmm. in there, which again I love. Um, mm-hmm. But mostly they dress in a very timeless and beautiful way. They, it doesn't seem like they're as ruled by trends not saying they're not trendy but they're not ruled by trends like we seem Mm. to be over here in america Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah that's such a good point i was reading an article and i maybe my first time too i can't remember what the article was because they didn't write down the (laughs) the source but it was um a woman sharing about her year trying to live la gomme basically and the one thing that she noticed was about how much more simple getting ready in the morning was for her when she practiced this balance um this practice of determining between wants and needs and how the needs are quite simple right they're quite basic and so even she talks about how she does her hair and compares it to how in like sweden it's often very embraced, like just your natural hair Mm -hmm. and how for her, she found that so freeing. She used to spend so much time, um, even daily in the morning, trying to style her hair to perfection, whereas she could just find a nicer balance in even those very personal aspects of our day-to-day lives. And then I think, again, it all goes back then again to when you've simplified those ways, right? You're very appreciative of the things you have and you free up that a little bit of time and mental mm. space and energy. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing I love about it is is the section in the book. Again, it's called Lagome by Linnea Dunn. And she says, quote, Last but not least, consider how you define happiness. Expectation is a powerful thing. If your aim is bubbling ecstasy, for example, life might seem disappointing a lot of the time. From a Lagom perspective, sustainable happiness is just as much about acknowledging problems with a solutions-focused hat on and being present during the small moments of calm and bliss in your everyday life. 
Wow. I <laughs> I want to live my life in a, what did she say, <laughs> ecstasy? What kind of ecstasy? Uh, well, that, yeah, that you're not supposed to lift your life. I know though. I'm not supposed oh, okay. to, but I'm just, oh, okay, okay. I'm now thinking like how much of, how much of my life is spent in pursuit of living in that yes. bubbling ecstasy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which sounds so attractive, but yeah. oh my gosh. But when she flipped and said like actually sustainable happiness is found with a approaching even life's problems with yes what was it the problem a solutions hat. focused hat yep and yes. then on the flip side being present also for the um the small moments of common bliss that you're just at the ready in the in the moment right yeah and honestly um as soon as you said that part of the quote I was like oh no 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 that's actually what I want that sounds yes. even on paper more attractive than even bubbling ecstasy so yeah I love this idea that la gomme is again it's not complacency yeah. it's contentedness and contentedness um, does actually require a bit of work a bit of problem solving a bit of perspective um, and a little bit of inner work with our virtues so that we're self-controlled enough to balance those desires from what is actually essential. Yes. And so like what you're saying, somewhere in that middle ground, one finds contentment. There's a painting by Edward von Grutzner, and it's called Peace and Contentment. Now, it comes up on the Wikipedia page for contentment, a, a page riddled with issues, <laughs> as it reads like a personal essay, I will say. But there's an image there, this painting from 1897, and it's of an older man. He looks like a monk in his brown habit and hat, but he has a well-worn leather apron covering most of his clothing. He has his hands resting on the breast part of the apron, thumbs tucked inside, fingers on the outside. You know the pose. And his head is leaning back on a barrel. It makes me think that perhaps he's a beer maker and he's on his break. He's had enough to eat. You can see that from the cloth from which he removed his lunch. There's one piece of bread left and a tiny morsel of cheese by the knife and a tankard there, no doubt filled with beer at one time. And he's smiling and he's almost just looking at you, glancing at you from the corner of his eyes. And there's a slow grin and it wrinkles up his cheeks and he looks very satisfied. He's had enough. He's had his fill. He has rested and his needs have been met. He isn't a fancy man and he will no doubt have to return to work, but there is no doubt that he is deeply content. It is different than happiness, although happiness and contentment are siblings. It's hard to picture contentment alongside any other emotions, but it can be there if we cultivate it. It can bring a slow smile to your face too, even amidst worries and troubles. It can help you find ways to be thankful and it can help you savor that little treat you're having with your afternoon coffee. And like our friend in the painting, you too can tuck your hands in somewhere comfortable and lean back in your chair and smile the smile that says, that's enough, I'm good now. Okay, it's time for our What We're Loving This Week segment of the show. So, Lindsay, what have you been loving this week? 
Well, I just have to say off the bat, I had a wonderful week away with some girlfriends, right? And so I spent a day mm. at a Scandinavian spa, which oh. I could say is my what I was loving this week because we were talking about that. And so it's that whole hot bath, steam room, cold plunge. And I'm a chicken, so I couldn't do the cold plunge. But um, <laughs> yeah, so it was kind of a way. So there wasn't a lot I consumed media wise, but then mm-hmm. I realized well, there was a show that Jason and I managed to binge um, all in like one day last week. Um, And I debated on sharing it because it's a pretty heavy show and it might not appeal to a lot of people. But we thought it was very well done. And I I think it's worth watching if this genre appeals to you. Okay, so it's almost totally appropriate. We did fast forward through one very quick scene, Um, but it's a German show and it's on Amazon Prime. It just showed up and it's called The Therapy. Um, I don't know if you've seen it yet, Michelle, Mm. on your homepage. No, I haven't. Um, We watch it with subtitles. I can't handle dubbed TV shows, so we have to go subtitles. And um, it just sucked us in immediately. It opens with a father frantically searching for his missing 13-year-old daughter who seems to have vanished from the doctor's office while he was waiting in the waiting room. Now, on the surface, it seems like the show is about the missing teenager, and there's a lot of flashbacks that lead up to her disappearance. But what it really is is a deep dive into mental health and the Mm. therapy field. And it's a mind bender because you really start to wonder who is the patient here? Mm. Who's the one actually needing therapy? And it's eye-opening and it is a look at what very severe mental health looks like and its impact on loved ones. So again, I just want to warn everyone, it is intense and dark, but it's also incredibly acted and beautifully filmed. And if this sounds like it's up your alley, you can check out The Therapy on Amazon Prime. Oh, that sounds really good. I Mm-hmm. I well, I know we've talked about this before, but I do love um, shows and movies that really challenge yeah. your mind and challenge how you're thinking and how you're seeing things. And so, yeah. I'm definitely going to check this one out. And so, what have you been loving this week, Michelle? Okay, so I need to talk today about the documentary Beckham on yes. Netflix. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, a, a caveat before I really get into it, though. Um, the documentary is riddled with a lot of profanity, like F-bombs, I will yep, say. Yep. Right? It's done almost entirely interview style, which I know we've talked before, and I know you've said it before, Lindsay, too, that sometimes it can make a difference when it's yeah. like speaking off the cuff profanity as opposed to actually scripted in yep. profanity to a show. but. There is a lot. So just be mindful of that before you watch. Um, And also just as a side note, before I get into why you may want to consider it anyways, you could also stream this show through a filter like VidAngel. Like we've used VidAngel before and it would work really well in filtering out language of any show you're not sure about. But the reason why I still want to talk about this show is because it was just excellent in several ways. So the documentary follows soccer superstar David Beckham from his childhood love of soccer through his career and fame in the sport. Um, I don't remember following the highlights or the lowlights of his career very closely (laughs) while they were happening. (laughs) So I found the documentary so interesting, especially when you're able to hear from the players and from Beckham himself about, you know, the inner workings of the soccer world, how things work there. Um, their real feelings on certain games or situations that was going on. And I also really loved hearing about David and his wife, Victoria's marriage and family life. 
I found their their love story and their commitment to one another really beautiful through the highs and also through the many challenging points of their marriage and how they really spoke about knowing that this was something they both wanted to fight for and so they did tooth and nail. Um, I also didn't know much about Victoria Beckham at the time um, but I was really impressed with her through the throughout the documentary as well. Her dedication to her family in particular. Um, I followed her on Instagram for a while now, but this documentary really made my respect for her go up for sure. Otherwise though, the production is incredible. Um, Something that they did while filming that I loved was when they would do a very, very close up of the interviewee's face. And then I... I think that they would be showing through maybe the reflection of the camera lens or something, a moment or a game or a headline um, to catch the interviewee's reactions and emotions. Um, And they would overplay that with clips of a game or something. It's hard to explain. I don't know if I made sense, but you'd have to see it to know what I'm talking about. Oh, totally. It's I'll cut in. It's my favorite part, too. It's it's incredible that they did that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly it, what made, you're saying. yeah. it made it so intimate, right? And yeah. personal. Um, and then finally, just the storytelling itself, I really felt was masterfully done. So at times it was informal and casual, at other times a bit more narrative. But I loved the fantastic use of the clips intermixed with the interviews, sometimes going back and forth very, very quickly to tell a really good story. And it was just a documentary and a show that I got really lost in. Um, and I appreciated their story so much. And I'm really glad that they produced something like this. Oh, Michelle, I'm so glad you shared this because um, mm-hmm. I saw the first three episodes. And I think I told you it's killing me that I saw them when we were away at a cottage where there was Netflix, but we don't currently have Netflix. And the oh, Wi-Fi yes. cut out before oh, no. I could watch the fourth episode. <laughs> and oh, I no. was like doing anything to like extend our stay in the cottage so I could just watch the last episode. (laughs) But to this day, I haven't seen it. Um, yeah, the language was hard to deal with, but it, it, it does tell such an interesting story. Never before, never before have I cared about soccer. I'll just say that flat out. Right. (laughs) But then I'm like, yeah, (laughs) yeah. My jaw was on the ground and I actually, as much as, and I have followed Victoria's career since the Spice Girl days. Um, but, Mm -hmm. um, I, and I've, I mean, I've, I'm a celebrity junkie, so I have known Posh and Bex. I've been following their relationship since the nineties, but I never really cared about him on his own and having this new appreciation for the sport and him as a little boy sleeping beside a soccer ball and his pictures of soccer. And it's just, it's a really wholesome story. And I think that you and I've talked before, like with our other show that we love chef's table. And Mm. when you see someone who, who's dreamed of doing something forever and then they've excelled in it, that's just Mm -hmm. a great story, right? That whether you are interested in what the job is or what they do, seeing someone work so hard and get what they deserve feels fantastic. So it's just a really encouraging and inspiring story. Mm -hmm. And also too, I think what adds to that as well, in this regard too, I was really surprised by how impressed I was with his character. Yes. Just his work ethic, his um, courteousness. There's one part where... um, David Beckham was having troubles with one of his teammates Mm -hmm. and his teammate retaliated by speaking publicly about the tiff and Mm -hmm. you know the David and the other team players on being interviewed were just saying like you just don't do that 
Like nothing leaves the change room when you're on a soccer team like that. And so um, eventually they reconciled and they sat down face to face and they talked it out. And this other player was big enough to admit that he was wrong for doing that Um, and that he still felt how he felt, but he shouldn't have handled it like that. And Beckham said, "Okay, I respect you for saying that. And then it was over. And this other player was saying in the interview, he's like, I don't know what I was expecting. He's like, if it was me on the other side of that table, I would have totally written the guy off. Mm. Just been like, yeah, whatever, we're done. And so it was just like um, a lot of a lot of that kind of character that I didn't know about the personal life of David Beckham and that I'm I was interested to learn more about. And one more thing I learned that I really appreciate about soccer or football, as I yes. never knew I did, was um, when they bring in so the like Newcastle United, Manchester United, they always have the younger kids division. And yes. remember how they bring the big like the professional players out in the field, and they always had a kid with them. Like they yes. were always really building up that next like player, the next players. They really mm-hmm. integrated them well into the the clubs, right? Into the, right. Into the football clubs, and so it's this whole thing that we just don't really understand here in Canada and so Mm -hmm. it was the entire culture that I was just so excited to see like this little glimpse into okay that's going to do it for us this week if you want to get in touch and chat with us about our topic today you can find us on our website www.themodernlady1950.wordpress.com Or leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at The Modern Lady Podcast. I'm Michelle Sachs, and you can find me on Instagram at mmsachs. And I'm Lindsay Murray, and you can find me on Instagram at lindsayhomemaker. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week, and we will see you next time.